from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer of dark poetry and prose who also teaches literature at the University of Tennessee. He incorporates theoretical physics, vivid imagination, and thorough research to create immersive worlds that captivate the reader. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel entitled Galatok. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Andrew Nyberg. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this eighth day of October 2023. I thoroughly enjoyed the Mobius door, so you can imagine my elation when you reached out to offer me an advanced copy of your newest novel, Galatok. I can genuinely say that the content of the book exceeded every expectation I had. Rich, immersive, and captivating, Galatok is a testament to your talent and creativity as a writer. And oddly enough, Galatok came highly recommended by Blaine Daigle when he called into my live stream one night. (laughs) And given the glowing review from one of your contemporaries, I know it's a great read. So I'm excited to have you on the show today. Oh, no, that's fantastic to hear. You know, it's funny because I'm really proud of Mobius. That book was a real investment to create. But, you know, I do try to say this without slighting what I did for Mobius in any way. But honestly, my personal feeling about the craft, about the story I had to tell, honestly, I think Galatok is clearly a superior novel to me. Mobius was this really crazy patchwork of almost like nightmares and hallucinations and things like that, that I really, really fought to weave into uh, what I thought was good shape. And Galatok was one of those novels that from beginning to end felt directed. I knew what that book was from the outset. I knew what the characters wanted. I knew why they were doing what they were doing. And it wasn't a fight. It was just, uh, I mean, honestly, like, you know, people talk about sort of that joy of writing and as creepy and dark as I hope the book to be, it was just pure joy to write. Yeah. Well, kind of a 
a little bit of a synopsis, so to speak. The book is about a man named Hamel E. Varka, who is sent to a remote island to join a survey team tasked with cataloging the abandoned Galatok prison. The story takes place in post-nuclear Eastern Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about the setting and the time period? So for the setting, if you kind of were to go through a lot of my work, you'll notice there is actually a distinctive Central and Eastern European Mediterranean coast vibe. So, you know, Mobius, of course, features Veles, the, you know, Croatian trickster deity. So, you know, that element was pretty strongly present there. And if you were to take a look at my um, poetry collection, which has been out since 2021, the goats have taken over the barracks. Over half of those poems are set in Croatia. My mom's family comes from Croatia. And so a lot of her memories and a lot of the things she's kind of talked about growing up and all of the values she instilled in me, you know, kind of have that sort of origin. And I first traveled there in 2001 or so, not too long after 9-11 and stuff like that. And I was really struck by the way in which there's sort of a timeless feeling to everything you see in Eastern Europe. Croatia has seen its fair share of contemporary you know, military conflicts, especially with the Bosnian-Serbian conflict spilling over. And so, you know, you'll be walking along a beautiful beach road, and then suddenly there's a uh, collapsed structure from shelling 20 years ago. But then, you know, you'll turn a corner a mile down the road, and you'll find a church that was built in about 1000 AD. And so, you know, you go to the next city over, and you're walking through the hallways of Diocletian's Palace, you know, so you get this really crazy, you know, side by side of things that are entirely contemporary and fresh, but right beside things from true antiquity. So, you know, there's a certain extent to the way I view the location itself as having this sort of out of time feel where it's sort of this conglomeration of time periods. And that lends to the idea of creating this sort of retro futuristic culture. So, you know, of course, it is set post cataclysm, but it's also about 20 years post cataclysm. So, you know, society has seriously undergone reconstruction and recovery. A lot of the sort of social movements that get referred to throughout the story are um, further recovery and reclamation movements. And I felt it was just really fitting to have a futuristic setting that was also designed to feel like it was set slightly in the past, just because of the general vibe I get from that region of the world. So slightly in the past, you say? Well, early in the uh, in the novel, so a couple of the best examples I can give is the survey teams dispatched to the island. And, you know, they have a very superficial motivation that you hear right at the outset that they're supposed to investigate disturbances that have been reported. And, you know, we know pretty quickly from our characters that they immediately regard that as a veneer, you know, that is going to be a deeper or more pressing motivation. And they begin speculating, you know, are we looking for sensitive records or are we looking to recover old technology? And we see pretty quickly in dialogue through the characters that old technology can refer to anything from, you know, computers to, you know, other electronics and cellular phones, perhaps even medicines, weapons. You know, uh, we've lost in the narrative a lot of the, the highly specialized tech that makes a lot of contemporary life function. Mm. And through the context of this post-nuclear world, I was 
getting just from the conversations that they had with each other, I was getting this feeling that the government post-disaster had, during the rebuilding, become this authoritarian thing. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what kind of government structure existed? Well, so to some extent, of course, you know, one of the reasons I set this in former Yugoslavia was that even now, and this is fairly true for any place where there's been major paradigm shifts in leadership and government, the specter of the old government will always loom. So, you know, for example, you know, you might take contemporary Russia, you know, for quite a while there through the 80s and 90s, you know, we started to see, you know, Clinton building relationships with Boris Yeltsin. And there is this oddly hopeful and progressive feel for that kind of relationship and this emphasis on a new, freer, more democratic Russia. And then we see pretty quickly how further shifts and problems can quickly bring something back towards a more authoritarian, you know, much more restrictive and invasive states. And so one of the things that I was thinking is that um, following, you know, the nuclear cataclysm that uh, happens well before the story, you know, in Hamill's childhood, you know, one of the first things that I would imagine would occur would be, you know, emergency reconstruction powers, emergency recovery mm. powers, um, you know, where the government assumes the ability to do things like seize farm products to be able to ensure that everyone can eat the kind of power grabs that would feel completely legitimate in their own ways, where, you know, they serve a clear survival function to make sure that the populations don't just vanish. But then as it would play out, my thinking is that you would have competing factions in a government like that. And it'd be almost a crapshoot as to which one's going to win out. You know, are the more modern liberal kind of governance, uh, the ones who focus on more democratic Western values, is that the faction that's going to win out? Or is it the one who is more cutthroat, is wanting to push Mm. back into that authoritarian mode because it's easy, it's simple, you know, it's ruthless enough to get things done exactly as they saw needed. And that's some of the reasoning that would kind of bring you to that proto-authoritarian state that you see, you know, especially characterized early in the novel. Kind of an institution of martial law. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, well, and you know, you got to figure, you know, another reason it's set in Eastern Europe, too, is I figure that that would be a less direct military target that you'd still have. um, You know, if there was a global nuclear war, you'd still have detonations occurring in areas like that. But greater concentrations would be where power is traditionally recognized, such as, you know, you'd see England being hit. You'd see France and Germany being hit. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Eastern Europe is small enough that it would appear less overtly threatening and therefore would have a higher survival rates. Yeah. Well, so now the truly interesting part, when you were on the show the first time for the Mobius door and you were talking about Gala Talk, you explained it then as it's a, a derivation of Gali Atok, mm-hmm. which was an actual real life internment camp that you based the story on. And it was because from stories passed down by your mother, your grandfather was actually interred there. So if you wouldn't mind (laughs) telling us about why was he there for how long and did it have any lasting effects that troubled him throughout his life? 
So in terms of why he was there, it's a combination of two things, which are actually very directly influential on the novel. One, in the simplest form, he was an anti-communist mm. during the height of 60s and 70s Yugoslavian communism. And um, so he was an open advocate of major change and, you know, advocating capitalism and other freedom-based values. And so that was something that had already seriously put him on the government's radar. And then he also happened to be a smuggler. And so he had his own boat. He was the captain of a small craft. And uh, we actually have somewhat of a history of pirates on that side of the family, which I just can't deny that I love. Um, but uh, <laughs> Hell yeah, I would but, uh, yeah, tell everybody about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But eventually, you know, I mean, it basically caught up with him. And for the most part, communist governments were perfectly fine allowing the black markets to exist. You know, they recognized that as a means of control. You know, you have the illusion of sort of this communist equality, that everything's regulated, everything is shared. But then you also allow people their individual pleasures, but you also make it this enemy combatant that you're always fighting against. And, you know, there's definitely a political function to allowing something like that to operate. You bust it enough to make it clear that it's quote-unquote illicit, but you also allow it to keep people pacified and happy. So, you know, if it hadn't been for his political advocacy, he probably might have been, you know, sort of allowed to continue smuggling. If it hadn't been for his smuggling, he probably would have gotten away with the political advocacy. But you put those two things together and yeah, that landed him in uh, Igali Otak. And so, you know, the prison itself, I will say topographically, if you were to um, compare the description of the island to the actual island on the map, you would notice some distinctive differences. And I won't get into why those differences exist, but there is actually a very concrete plot reason. But uh, otherwise, the island itself, the name is loosely translated into the barren island or the naked island. Mm. It was characterized as such because of its almost total lack of shelter, besides from a few man-made buildings. The topography is a little bit hilly, but you're not finding any valuable shelter in natural geographical formations. And then there's almost no plant life. It's very minimal, mostly scrub brush. Animal life is limited to what you'd get aboard your average ship or that can fly in under its own power. So you get some birds, some insects, you know, lizards, rats, snakes, the standard stowaway fauna. Of course, you know, that's a little bit different for the book. It gets leaned into as a much more toxic place than even that. But, mm. you know, part of the punishment of the island was A, it was a prison where you didn't really need guards or you didn't need a traditional guard presence. You didn't need walls because the ocean itself with pretty sharp Mediterranean currents were the walls. And then you didn't need a whole lot of punishment either because simply existing in the Mediterranean heat and sun and then ultimately in surprisingly biting Mediterranean winters and weather was considered punishment enough. And so I know, for example, of the 16,000 prisoners who were sentenced to Gali Otak, over 4,000 died from exposure, disease and starvation and thirst. So, you know, 25% mortality rate among its denizens. So very hostile, very awful place. And then naturally, alongside that, they did sentence prisoners to all sorts of meaningless, harsh labor, which, you know, does get featured fairly early on in the narrative as just sort of one of Hamill's reflective points upon arrival on the island. But, you know, honestly, I will say I don't remember exactly how long my grandfather was there. It was a period of more than several months, but I also know it's less than three years 
my timeline of his life is a little bit fuzzy. Unfortunately, I got interested in these kinds of things a little too late. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, he had already passed by the time I started understanding things. So growing up, I mean, I always knew him as this kind of quiet or often quiet, but also oddly silly (laughs) person. Um, (laughs) You know, he wouldn't talk a whole lot, but, you know, most of what I remember him saying was him cracking jokes. And, you know, maybe it's just me being a kid at the time and that just being what stuck with me. But yeah, he's, uh, you know, one of the reasons I got interested in this in a way is because, you know, it was somebody I never really had a chance to get to know too well when I was growing up. And I don't know, uh, that kind of thing kind of bothers me. You know, we don't have a whole lot of time with each other. And, you know, even if you're just a dumb kid who doesn't know that you should be getting to know your family, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like to think that, you know, a story like that's going to go kind of unmemorialized. Mm. So because he had already passed, that's the reason why the regaling with the stories came from your uh, mother. Mm-hmm. Has she read the book? No. No? She has not. In fact, when I sent Gala Talk out for publication, there was literally not a single person who'd read this book. Oh, wow. Not even beta readers? No. Um, oh. I, I had no beta readers of any kind. Actually, I, I didn't have them for this or for Mobius. Oh, okay. The only book I've used beta readers for at this point has been The Neverborn Thief, my young adult dark fantasy that comes out uh, in January. That one was a little bit different because I'm not used to writing for kids. Mm. And so I actually asked a few friends who had children of an appropriate age if they'd be willing to have ask their kids to read it for me so that I could get a sense of how it would resonate and connect with the target audience. But yeah, no, my mom's actually really looking forward to Gala Talk, but she doesn't read on screens. And, you know, printed full page manuscript is kind of a pain in the butt to deal with. So she hasn't had a chance to yet. So I, I forgot to ask, kind of circling back to Golly Odd Talk, if you don't mind me asking, what did your uh, grandfather smuggle? Um, honestly, mostly innocuous shit. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it was, um, I mean, your standard Western fare. I mean, it'd be things like blue jeans, cigarettes, alcohol, and oh, okay. probably, you know, candies and, uh, you know, things that were deemed as unnecessary Western luxuries. So he didn't have like 90 kilos of blow? <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 not that kind. Yeah. You know, no drugs, no guns or anything like that. You know, he wasn't that form of of revolutionary or destructionist, unfortunately. But, um, you know, that would make for a pretty awesome story in and of itself. But uh, (laughs) no, yeah, it was basically, you know, I mean, really, he was a person who genuinely, in his own way, was trying to make life better for his village, for the people in the surrounding area. And it's kind of like, you know, Dostoevsky always talked about when, you know, people live in cruel and uncertain conditions, they're still going to manage to find ways to laugh and make people laugh. Mm. And I think that was kind of the foundation of what he was doing. Yeah. Well, how did you handle the logistics and limitations of an island setting, like resources, communications, the outside world, and potential escape routes as far as the dynamics of the story and the tension? Well, so in the most fundamental sense, one of the reasons I chose an island setting is because of the extreme limitations on all of those elements. Mm -hmm. I wanted to minimize escape. I wanted the characters to, in some way, 
be confined to their destination with no normal means of escape. I wanted them to have very limited access to resources because resources give you ability to problem solve. And I wanted them to feel really overwhelmed in the face of the challenges that they were confronted with. You know, even some of the early stuff like, you know, the boat they find on the plateau, you know, how do you deal with such a large piece of equipment without, you know, access to any sort of machinery or anything like that. And I'm going to try to avoid spoilers past about the oh, yeah, yeah. mark of the story, <laughs> but because of the way the story is kind of doled out in small drabs across the piece instead of in a lot of exposition, I don't know if I could avoid pointing some stuff out early on. But no, you know, there are several plot elements that do arise in service of creating the sense of isolation, helplessness, and under-equipment. So, you know, right at the beginning, the very opening scene, which is the first piece I actually wrote for this story, you know, you have Varka and the ferryman. And, you know, the ferryman, you know, mentions that, uh, you know, he's not had a functioning motor the entire time he's been in service, like a decade. And, you know, Varka offers to put in a requisition and his reply is, yeah, then, you know, it'll get here after I'm dead, you know. And one of the reasons I set that up is, you know, I wanted to eliminate traditional motor transportation. That's, you know, they have a motor heading towards the island itself, but, um, you know, it craps out barely into their voyage. And I didn't want them to have easy access back and forth, but I also wanted to give a solid justification for why that is. So scarcity of motors, scarcity of fuel, that also helped field into some of the decisions I made about the broader setting and context of this post-nuclear society where a lot of infrastructure has broken down. So, you know, factories to build replacement parts. Sure, you know, factories are up and running in this story. You know, we're not at that point of post-apocalyptic failure, but you know, what do you prioritize? You know, which ones are going up first? And so, you know, um, outboard motors for a largely land-based society, and you get the clear impression, I think, that these islands are not exactly thriving civilization anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that was a deliberate decision, though, to create that scarcity that's going to leave them without a viable craft. Similarly, having all of their supplies delivered up front in an advanced cachet was another element to help create that sense of scarcity that, you know, they arrive there and their knowledge is these are your tools and nothing more. So they arrive with the expectation that there is no legitimate possibility of timely relief. That, of course, then helps escalate tension because, you know, they know fairly justifiably from the start that this is uh, while they're told this is a very routine survey. This is just a simple investigation and catalog. You know, it's putting in the parameters that if something goes wrong, you already know that they're going to be in serious trouble. But regardless Mm -hmm. of what kind of catastrophe they're faced with, it's kind of like, you know, being a a modern American citizen where, you know, the standard knowledge at this point is that you're one disaster away from bankruptcy. You know, you don't know what the disaster is going to be. You know, it could be a car wreck. It could be a tree falling on your house. It could be an illness. Mm -hmm. But, uh, all it takes is that one thing that could go wrong because anytime you look at your finances and you're like, huh, you know, I, I don't have a uh, three months worth of uh, income set aside. Um, yeah. You know, um, it's kind of that same thing. That was the feeling I wanted to give it was kind of put simply, they're always one paycheck away from complete calamity. Yeah, scarcity is just a free floating anxiety. This <laughs> is mm-hmm. looming in the background. Well, One of the things I found interesting is the protagonist, Varka, 
I thought he was really interesting because he was the epitome of assertion. Like he was assertive and I'm making a, a very sharp delineation between being assertive and being aggressive or like an alpha. Like if mm -hmm. I had to make a, an analogy to like being in school, <laughs> alpha would be the football coach that, you know, tells you you're going to uh, in school suspension or sack or, or whatever, you know, form of discipline you had screaming at the top of his lungs, trying not to curse, you know, <laughs> and then <laughs> assertion would be the principal explaining to you calmly what's going to happen now because <laughs> he was in charge, but, you know, he was, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but he was undermined many different times by people that were under his supervision, so to speak. And instead of assuming this alpha role, he just very calmly explained to them, you know what, when this is all said and done, I'm writing up a report and I'm going to, you know, <laughs> have your demotion or however he worded it. So what made you decide to make the leader and the protagonist more assertive than Alpha? And how did his personality influence his assignment by his superiors? It seems like his superiors probably put him in charge because of his personality for some reason. Yeah, there's a couple parts to the answer for that. I'll actually answer the last part first, though. You know, to a certain extent, you know, he comes from a a family legacy within the government. His father was very capable at his job. And, you know, there is a little bit of nepotism going on there. But, you know, I also wanted Varka to some extent to be a reflection of his dad. You know, his dad was also a fairly upright individual, willing to do what was needed when needed, but also seemed to work with some sort of foundational moral code that created lines across which he would not compromise. And so in Varka, you know, one of the things that he really wants to do is, you know, he wants to restore his family and his own status to uh, sort of a level equivalent to what his father had achieved. And so there's a part of Varka that is very intentionally trying to be his dad, you know, that he wants to be this person who's able to navigate this really cutthroat system while still holding, you know, reasonably true to set of values. That's kind of the first part of the answer. And then the second part is, you know, in terms of, you know, both why he was chosen for the assignment and then how I've decided to have him take this approach is, you know, the Bureau in this piece, they were sort of a stand-in for, you know, sort of an overarching, you know, central government body, kind of like a, a legislature with a lot of bureaucratic underpinnings. And let's see, what's the best way to put it? Basically, they need somebody who is desperate enough, you know, is motivated enough to be willing to toe the line without asking enough questions. But, you know, they're also fully aware of the competing interests that they fostered within their system. So, you know, when they pair up Varka with a member of the oversight committee, with a military operative, you know, they're fully aware that these different branches are definitely working with their own agendas and goals in mind. And so, you know, Varka has an element of mediation where even when he fails to communicate, he is still always attempting to communicate and build bridges. It shows up in a lot of his relationships and conflicts over the point. Like uh, one of my favorite scenes is uh, his first confrontation on the island with Yost. And 
Mikhail, you know, definitely squarely sides with Yost, but also can't help but expressing sympathy for, you know, for Hamill's predicaments. You know, he understands where Hamill's coming from because Hamill has communicated as is his stance. And that ability as the story progresses does improve Hamill's relationships with the people he's working with. I think it's one of the things that was, for me as an author, was something I utilized to take a lot of difficult characters and make them just a little more likable by the end. You know, I think Hamill's ability to speak with them also helps us connect with them as characters. Hmm. Well, (laughs) contrary to him, you mentioned Yost seems to be the <laughs> alpha female, just straight up Laura Croft. Um, <laughs> how did you ensure that her character didn't become one dimensional or stereotypical? Oh, that's a great question. So Yost is actually just straight up my favorite character out of the story. Um, so to a certain extent, I mean, that's part of it is that I really enjoyed working with her character and that really made me think about the nuances of her personality. You know, so early on, of course, you know, the first time we meet her, she definitely is that outright alpha, you know, seize control and dominate personality. Um, We see it in how she treats Varka. We see it in how she treats the customs inspector as well. That's, you know, her approach is intimidate, demand, and take control. But that's our first impression. But I work very quickly in the story to start subtly undermining that. You know, we see, for example, in the boats. First off, one of the things I wanted to show is on the journey across the channel that she also is a very capable person. You know, so she's not just all bluster and win. So that Mm -hmm. was the first thing I started working on. It's like, okay, so this person is arrogant and aggressive, but they also have some skills that are going to help match that and make them useful at least. So, you know, I want the reader to be able to see, okay, so that's why this person's here. Maybe they're not the greatest person, but, you know, they'll get stuff done and you can expect them to play a key role. Later on, you know, I do increasingly try to show that much of this is, and I'm going to kind of very carefully word this, it's rooted in several different kinds of vulnerability that I also give the character as the story progresses. You know, Mm -hmm. we both see that in some of her underlying motives that get uncovered later in the story. But then also in a couple of very specific moments of fragility, particularly trying to think of, again, the best way to word this without getting too deep (laughs) into things I actually don't want to spoil. But um, at the end of the second foray onto the plateau, when they've taken the raft, you know, when they get back to camp at that point, I do think um, we see a very different side of the character. That's, I think that's kind of the turning point or going to be the turning point for a lot of readers where they understand and sympathize with her a lot more directly. Yeah. Well, you spoke about the different agencies all competing, you know, with their own agendas. So it was kind of like everybody had their own objective but nobody really knew the whole what the whole narrative of the story was they just knew what part they were playing they didn't know how you know in the grand scheme of things they were interacting with it so how did you decide on the hierarchy of information within the team was there a method to who knew what um 
So to some extent, there's a really kind of simple foundation to it, which is I really did focus on looking at the nature of their job, the role that I figured that job would play. So, you know, with uh, Brogdon, for example, you know, he is a liaison for the oversight committee. And so of all of the characters, he has the largest amount of personnel history for the people involved. And He also has the largest amount of access to financial records and things like compliance reports and things like that. So, you know, I kind of figured that in terms of his orientation towards the island, he's going to have this really bureaucratic view of the things that have happened there. So, you know, he's going to be the person who knows the history of the island through its incident reports, for example. You know, he's going to know the characters by the demerits and accolades that have been placed on their record over their years of service. You know, he's going to have a little more knowledge on their family history. And this is kind of like drawing a little bit from knowing about my family in communist Yugoslavia, you know, the things that got put on their records where they had personal concerns. So, you know, for example, if they had suspicion that somebody was homosexual, they could end up on one list. If they had suspicion that somebody, you know, was uh, possessed a lot of illicit black market goods, they may end up on another list. And so that was kind of how a lot of Brogdon's knowledge came about. And every time, you know, I had to decide whether he knew something, you know, I had to bounce it off that. So when it came to his knowledge of Yost, for example, you know, Lieutenant Yost is military and, you know, she's going to have a tactical objective. And so I really didn't think that Brogdon would have realistic access to the tactical side of her mission. But what I did think he'd have was he'd have access to the financial dossiers for her mission. So he would have known in advance what kind of equipment she requisitioned. And then I'd be able to ask, okay, so if he knows what she's requisitioned, what can he glean about what her real purpose is going to be? And so on and so forth. And then Hamill Of course, he's our point of view character, you know, and to a certain extent, I deliberately put him on the bottom of the information totem pole, because at the end of the day, his reason for being there really is nothing but a timekeeper. He serves a purpose very similar to a warrant officer on a ship, where his duty is simply to ensure that other people do their duties. It doesn't matter that he understands why they do it, as long as he keeps an accurate log that they're doing their duty in the way that he expects them to do it, then he's doing his job correctly. And, you know, so he's he's really there just to be like, hey, you know, if Yost isn't investigating, isn't heading out into forays into the island, he would be then reminding her to pick up the pace that, you know, she has things that she needs to be taken care of. If the technicians aren't you know, working to restore communications, that's going to be something he's primarily concerned with is investigating why they are not making sure that they continue to do their job once he knows why. Hmm. Let me preface this next question with you did a very good job of this, but I was curious to know how you balance the suspense of providing partial information without making it confusing for the reader, because I can't remember in the previous episode what you said about whether or not you outline, but I'm sure, especially if you don't use beta readers, that because you're neck deep in the story, it would probably be really easy to write it to where you're like, yeah, this makes total sense. I'm following it fine, but not realize that people that aren't neck deep in it because they're not the author are like, what the hell is going on? I don't understand this. But as I (laughs) prefaced earlier, you did a great job of sewing it all up. I'm just curious, how do you do that? Is that detailed outlining or... 
No. <laughs> so, damn it, uh, I wanted it to make sense somehow. <laughs> well, okay, so there's a couple ways I can approach that question, though. One, I will say straight out, no outlining whatsoever. The first draft of the story was written linearly from beginning to end. The only exceptions to that were initially on the island of Midway. It's actually Yost, Brogdon, and Efta that meets Hamill. And I decided to push EFTA back to the island in order to accelerate their journey to the island. In the process, there was another minor character. He was the supply master, and I ended up eliminating his role entirely and collapsing it into Tomka, the engineer. And so both those elements got heavily blended into a later part of the narrative. Fortunately, it wasn't really the biggest of transitions. It was really just a question of extending a couple of dialogues. And I built, I think, one new scene with EFTA to make sure that um, a few very key pieces of information were inserted. But then the only other structural change is that so the best way I can put this is that, you know, there's a certain point at which, um, you know, there's an earthquake on the island and almost everything that follows until the reuniting of a couple key characters was inserted in the second draft. Otherwise, though, yeah, um, everything else was invented completely linearly. The stuff that was included at the end, there's a scene where one character leaves a video message. I don't know if you recall that, but mm -hmm. that scene was very specifically included to tie together some of those breadcrumbs that I'd been putting throughout. So, you know, I had read through it again, and I actually, I mean, I read through it several times in revision, and one of the reads was very specifically taking careful note of where are the artifacts of the larger world? You know, where have I built in these larger story questions, you know, to make sure that the groundwork is there and anything I felt like it had not been provided clearly enough for the reader did end up in that particular element. So there were a few details I hammered out just to make sure that everything was as clear as I needed to be. Otherwise, though, you know, the models for the story, a huge amount of this piece was built off of uh, the more contemporary influence of um, Annihilation by Vandermeer. You know, it's one of my modern favorite books. And one thing I love about it is, you know, Annihilation itself feels like a contained novel, but holy shit, it does not explain itself. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you reach the end and you have no clue what's actually happened in the broader context. You know exactly what's happened moment to moment for these characters and you can speculate all you want. So that was part of the design influence. I kind of held it up to the Vandermeer test of, you know, how am I giving information and mystery compared to a pacing like Annihilation? But then also my favorite novel of all time is Kafka's The Trial. Mm, you yeah. know, um, I read that book 18, 20 times at this point, And, you know, I've taught it repeatedly. And, you know, one of the key parts of that story is that it doesn't have a rational explanation at the end. There are plenty that you can speculate on, but there is no concrete answer to what really happens in that story. You're deliberately alienated from fundamental truths of the narrative. And that was also a guiding principle I brought in was that, you know, I don't necessarily need to explain these nuts and bolts. There's a lot of things that I can leave blank, a lot of gaps I can leave. You know, it's that, you know, early on in the story, you see that the sky is perpetually overcast. 
you get references to nuclear detonations. I mean, I expect people to put two and two together and start filling in the gap of a nuclear winter, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. start thinking about how a nuclear war would have come about. You know, I mean, there's answers to all those questions. You know, I've actually thought through a great deal of the history of this world, but I also decided that I really didn't want to give a lot of those answers and uh, instead uh, to favor the less is more policy where I tried to give what was most immediately relevant to Hamill's experience. You know, if this wasn't a first person novel, I might have felt differently. But, you know, because he is this character who's been deprived of many kinds of key information, you know, I really wanted to present the history that I do as if it was seen by him. Hmm. Well, so I hope this isn't a spoiler, but part of the story is the crew coming across logbooks, ID badges, notes, stuff like that. And uh, I actually learned a new term in a previous podcast episode. I was interviewing Brianna Morgan, and we were talking about her book where like the beginning of a chapter would be a police report. And I think I called it found fiction or something like that. And she said, well, the term and she's like, I very rarely correct people on this because it makes me sound (laughs) shitty. But she's like the proper term, if you want to well, actually somebody is epistolary fiction. So how do you feel the epistolary format impacts the intimacy or personal connection of the horror for the reader in your book? So a couple different things, actually. One not going to lie, part of the reason why I did put in things like these artifacts is there's a little homage to video game series like Silent Hill, Resident Evil, Mm. you know, where part of the experience of the story is finding these little cross sections. And, you know, if, if you've read Mobius, you know that I'm a big fan of limited appearance point of views. You know, I've had this conversation, you know, kind of informally with folk, but One thing that's distinctive, I think, is that you almost never see through Velius's point of view until the very end of the story. One of the last chapters is actually in his viewpoint. Otherwise, though, the only way you encounter him is by seeing his chain of victims across Millwood. So, you know, you run into Barclay at the old abandoned church right in the beginning. Then you run into the three teens on the water tower. Then the little girl, Millie. You know, each of those in one capacity or another is a victim of this force as it takes its journey across the city and as it equips itself to try to accomplish its goals. And I really love writing those limited window viewpoints where you're exploring characters who just don't have the full knowledge. You know, they're only getting this glimpse of something that's much beyond themselves. Because I think to some extent, you know, that idea of horror, there's a huge part of it that does come from the limitations of our perspectives. You know, even things like a lot of traditional jump scares play off of our limited point of view, where, you know, the reason why a lot of jump scares can even literally happen on the screen is because the camera chooses the information that we're able to see, and then we're blind to everything else around it. So, you know, you don't know what's right around that corner. You don't know what's on the other side of the cabinet door. You know, spoiler, it's a screaming cat. Um, but, uh, but no, you know, so these epistolary elements, you know, first off, give us this glimpse into these points of view. And they're all seen in different parts of a very horrifying history. So, you know, you have that opportunity to tantalize your audience with things that you can tell in a succinct form that you also don't have the space or 
you don't have a plausible way to realize as an experiential chunk of the narrative. So yeah, the logbook of the Saru was one of my favorite elements to create. And I actually <laughs> modeled that loosely after the Book of Casa Doom in Lord of the Rings. As a child, that was one of my favorite scenes. And I'd always wanted to incorporate something like that in a, a book I wrote. And that's kind of my homage to that. But no, I guess that really is the biggest chunk of it. Actually, no, there is one more thing. It also creates the sense that people have been here before. You know, continuity and persistence of world is one of the most important psychological tricks that we as authors need to establish. It's kind of like as a child, you know, object permanence. We learn that the ball doesn't disappear from existence just because it goes out of sight. And things like epistolary elements, found artifacts, you know, scraps and notes and things like that give us this sense that there were full lives being lived in the place that the story is set, but at a time that the story is not set. Well, you kind of changed the context on this next question with what you revealed about your grandfather as far as the fact that he was a smuggler. The island in the story is utilized as, I don't know what you would call it, like a way station mm -hmm. for smugglers. So when I think smugglers, you know, I think, well, like I said, 90 kilos a blow or whatever, <laughs> you know, and of course, along with that dangerous people. So when smugglers were mentioned in the story, I wasn't really thinking about like a benevolent revolutionary, you know, trying to help people with goods, some comfort and some necessary. So along with the scarcity, was it the tension of meeting up with these smugglers that was supposed to add to the story? Or was I getting a bad read on the smugglers? Because I guess the connotation when I hear the word smuggler is dangerous people. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, that is part of it. Early on in the piece, you have the nighttime scene where Hamill leaves his tent and he's conferring with Yost and Mikhail about the smugglers. And I wanted that to play in several different ways. You know, for example, one thing we know is that very early in the story, you have the customs inspector who intimates to Hamill that he doesn't think they're smugglers at all, but they're actually insurrectionists, that, mm. you know, he thinks there's a more violent force coalescing on this island. You know, Hamill's pretty dismissive of that, but, you know, it does raise at least something of a specter that this is something that people think about, even if it's not necessarily something that's always treated as realistic. But then, you know, at the same time, Isolated on an island, you know, it's worth noting that um, this force, you know, this survey team, you know, they have a military component, but when you really come down to it, it's not like they're a formidable fighting force. You know, Lieutenant Yost and Mikhail are the only two combat-capable people, you know, aside from arguably people in the team who might have had more training than a civilian. But, you know, they don't come across, I don't think, as like this military squad of badasses. I certainly hope that wasn't the feel that people get. And so, you know, they end up in this very remote, very unmonitored setting. And, you know, let's say that these are smugglers who, you know, are just smuggling in blue jeans and candy and vodka. <laughs> that was still a serious offense under these governments. And people were literally imprisoned in places like Gali Otak for those kinds of offenses. And so if you're facing a threat of severe punishment, and we know that punishments in the Bureau can be very severe very early on, 
you know, it doesn't matter if you're smuggling cocaine or heroin or if you're smuggling blue jeans. That, you know, if you think it's the difference between a serious sentence and escaping scot-free, wouldn't you kill the people who are, you know, on the island with you when no one would ever find their bodies? (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I wanted them to feel a legitimate threat early on and partially through ambiguity. I mean, we don't know what they're specifically smuggling. We get some reference to like smuggled coffee and stuff like that right at the outset. But, you know, I really did want it to be this sort of ambiguous force that Hamill doesn't really know what he might be up against and that they represent, in a way, a greater threat than they realistically might have been because he doesn't know. They could really be capable of anything. Hmm. Well, so (laughs) I was... I'll I'll wait till you're done drinking because I don't... don't (laughs) (laughs) this next question i was never a fan of jellyfish and uh, (laughs) i'm even less so now (laughs) so you can say as little or as much as you want with regard to this question you know as far as like if you think you're treading on spoiler territory but i I just need to know is this an actual species that i need to worry about (laughs) (laughs) so you know the opening scene with hamill and the ferryman is the very first scene that I wrote for the novel. And the jellyfish are prominent conversation topic in that scene. And um, that was one of the first things that emerged in the telling of this story. And it very much helped set the tone for the whole piece. So the jellyfish in question is itself, I would say, a unique species that does only exist in the book, but it's directly inspired by the box jellyfish which has always, to me, been one of the single most terrifying creatures on the planet. I don't know if you're familiar with box jellyfish, but they they live only off the coast of Australia, (laughs) on the southern coast specifically, and they have one of the single deadliest stings in uh, the entire world. And it's an unstoppable neurotoxin that even if you survive the sting, you're going to spend two to three weeks in completely agonizing, intractable pain. The best solution to it is to be placed in a chemically induced coma during which you will still feel pain and it can kill people in minutes or hours at most. And here's the scary part. There's two sizes of box jellyfish and the small ones are a little bit bigger than a quarter and they are transparent. So, you know, if you're in the water and the water is at all foamy and wavy like it is on the shore, typically, you really have no way of seeing one of these things even coming for you. So, you know, I did make them black in the book, but the reason I did that is because of the perpetual overcast of the world of the story. That to me, that was an adaptive trait that they went from transparent to a darker tone to be able to hide more effectively in the water. God, the Australian coast, isn't that where a large population of great whites kind of congregate? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, most things in or around Australia are pretty much just designed to kill you. Jesus. You know, that you also get... How is that not an epidemic of... <laughs> well, how do they not have... They shut down the beaches for about three to four weeks every summer, or I think it is. I'm not sure of the season, to be honest. But yeah, there's about three to four weeks at a time where they shut down the beaches and waters to allow the box jellyfish to bloom and migrate away. So, you know, um, literally, it prevents them from using the ocean. Um, Just to give a... 
no problem here. <laughs> Just let me know when oh, you yeah. stay away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've always been uncomfortable with jellyfish to begin with. Mm-hmm. I used to see them as a kid in Florida on the beach, washed up, and I was always very sternly taught to stay away from them because they could still sting you after they're dead. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's another thing that kind of went into this. You know, it's this thing that, you know, even when you kill it, it's still perfectly capable of harming you just as badly. So, you know, just from the thematic point of view, I mean, there was like, there's so many things about jellyfish that, you know, just bother the hell out of me. And then there, you know, there's such a weird life form too. I mean, you know, there's nothing else on earth that's like them aside from other branches of their family tree. They're so foreign and alien. And yeah, I mean, I was going for it. I wanted this place to be uncanny right from the start. I wanted it to feel like it was on our earth, but also like not of the earth because nothing you see there seems like it should be. Yeah. Yeah. What was the name in the matrix? What's the name of those monitoring devices that look like big jellyfish? The sentinels. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Effective uh, archetype to model those after. (laughs) Jesus. Well, the worlds you create often feel like characters themselves. How do you approach giving them depth, history, and personality? You know, and I'm referring to obviously Galatok as well as the Mobius store. Well, I mean, I think this is just a fundamental question. And I've touched on this a little bit already, but one of the things I think a lot about, and this isn't just held to my fiction, but also is in my poetry, you know, is what makes things feel real. You know, when I talk about writing to my classes, I spend a lot of time talking about cognitive elements. So, you know, for example, one of the first things we talk about is image, right? It's a natural starting point in a creative writing class. And one thing I always like to introduce is the idea that we don't just have five senses. And I don't mean like, you know, sixth sense ESP. You know, if you get into the real cognitive science of it, you know, um, they actually do believe we have anywhere between, you know, 10 and 15 sensory apparatuses. The example I like to use for the classroom purposes beyond the core five is our sense of time. That's, you know, regardless of external cues, we're capable of recognizing that time passes. And one of the reasons that really matters is that when you're reading, the amount of time it takes you to read passages is a huge part of your perception of the way in which time is operating in the story that you're reading. Let's say you have a scene unfolding and like, you know, it's a character, I don't know, making eggs, okay? And it takes them 20 minutes to read that scene. You're going to create dissonance. You know, there's going to be a problem between their perception of the passage of time and the amount of time that you're being told passes in the scene. If it happens too quick, you're going to get the same thing. And you can play with that. Of course, you may want that effect. But, you know, if it takes five minutes to cook an egg, if you wanted to create an accurate reproduction of that, you have five minutes worth of reading time. You could fill it with whatever you want. So it's not just description. It could be character thought and reflection. It could be digressions into history. But You know, if you want to create that accurate feel of five minutes, you want your reader to take five minutes to read through that passage so that the action is completed in that amount of time. If you want it to feel faster, you accelerate it and you do it faster. If you want it to drag, you slow it down and you make time drag. So, you know, I talk about a lot of different cognitive elements. And so similarly, 
when we talk about describing things, one thing I love to explain or, uh, you know, to explain and talk about with classes is that if you want to create a setting, one of the first things you have to think about is how we process any location we're in. So we always, for example, at any one point, have a focal point for our vision. So you can't describe a setting without giving your reader something to look at. It could be a statue, it could be a particular tree or a bench or a person, but our eyes are always going to fall on a specific detail. Once you have that, you also know that there has to be an immediate context. You know, you never look somebody in the eyes and forget that there's a face surrounding it. You know, you're never sitting across from somebody eating dinner and then forget you're in the restaurant during the conversation, no matter what it is you're looking at. So, you know, we also have to fill in that middle ground where we give the object we look at context. Then we also never lose sight of the fact, you know, the restaurant example that we're in a restaurant, you know, you never forget mm -hmm. the background either. So you always have to have those three elements to make any setting have a convincing sense of depth, at least in the most immediate experiential sense. But then also, you know, you're eating in a restaurant, you hear a car horn honk outside, right? Or, you know, maybe your mind goes to the babysitter who's watching your kids and you're wondering if they've invited their boyfriend or girlfriend over. But no, <laughs> I mean, so once we have that physical location created, we also have to create a depth of field where the place has to also feel like it exists beyond that location. So, you know, you have to have a character thinking about some location that's not that place so that you know there's more than one place in existence in this world. If you walk out the door, you're going to find something there that is not just this blank field that your reader doesn't know how to picture. Then, of course, we also have to remember stories take place on a continuum. One of my favorite things that I've encountered recently, actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Grady Hendrix, mm -mm. but uh, he's a novelist, writes some really great horror stuff. Um, some of it's been made into movies. My Best Friend's Exorcism was a pretty recent one. But I saw him do a talk at the Chattanooga Film Festival. It was called How to Sell a Haunted House in a Crowded Market, I think. And one of the things, though, he talked about was the fact that, you know, every house in its own way is haunted. That, you know, every mark you see on every surface is your own ghost reminding you of your past. So, you know, you're in a restaurant, for example, and you see that crayon mark on the wall that some kid drew there last week. You know, you see the serving person who has, um, you know, a little coffee stain right above their belt where maybe earlier that day they spilled something on themselves. You need some of those little details that suggest that the items you place in the scene exist outside the immediate time that the story takes place in. So, you know, you're creating depth along the dimension of time. You're creating depth beyond the space you've created. And then also you create a broader world surrounding it. And each of those elements has got to be addressed in some way or another. I try not to concentrate it. You know, I don't want to front load with world exposition. But, you know, in Gala Talk, for example, one of the things that I had some of the most fun doing actually was, um, you know, when Brogdon and Hamill first talk, they keep talking to each other in these really dismal and bleak platitudes, you know, <laughs> things like, um, what is it, uh, you know, life's too short for nature to decide what kills you, you know, <laughs> things like that, where, uh, yeah. you know, you think about, you know, what are the sayings that are going to come out of this world? Because that also then suggests the history of the world. A lot of the cliches and idioms of language are really fundamental to reflecting who we are as people. To be honest, I think to some extent, I'm now starting to kind of just preach straight out of Tolkien's book, um, <laughs> you know, and the, you know, his views on linguistics, which I've always been interested in since I was a kid. And to some extent, you know, that idea that everything we say and everything we make is loaded with the history of our culture. I think there's a lot of validity to that. Yeah. 
Well, so how do you decide on the limitations or boundaries of the worlds? Like, are there lines you won't cross like this isn't possible now, but it very well may be in the future, or this is probably outside the realm of reality, but at least logically I could sell it <laughs> to the reader, or uh, it doesn't matter if it's completely supernatural. So this actually traces back to our last conversation a little bit, talking about uh, Mobius store, where there is nothing that happens in Gala Talk that hasn't been explored in theoretical papers. Mm. You know, the way these elements and theoretical events are combined and the way they unfold, that does, you know, form a lot of the realm of fiction. But everything has a grounding. Everything has a root that I then extrapolate off of and speculate from. And I mean, hell, some of the things I picked even echo old science fiction and stuff, things that are going to be popularly familiar enough that I think most audiences will start to recognize them when they come across them. Even now, I just finished the primary draft of a hard science fiction novel with some horror elements. And it's definitely got some pretty out there stuff. But just like this, every single thing that's gotten put into that story was inspired off of some piece of physics, astrophysics, astronomy, contemporary research that I've read in the last, say, five years. And yeah, Galatok's not too different where got some fantastic elements. I mean, honestly, some mm. crazy ass shit happens at the end. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I actually sort of set out was to, I wanted to let a little loose with Gala Talk at the end. Mm. And, you know, I won't get too much more into that, but I will say that, you know, with Mobius, you know, the concept of the title, the Mobius door, caused me to take what I felt was a fairly restrained approach to the ending. You know, I know uh, one reviewer described the last act of Mobius as mind-bendingly weird, but I also didn't opt for large-scale violence and overt destruction. I really went for a much more point-of-view-based kind of uh, cataclysm. And yeah, Galatok, I decided I wanted to go a little bit bigger, a little more spectacular, so I was willing to kind of push and let go. But I also was very careful to think about exactly why this happens. And if we were to have a conversation about this with all spoilers on the board, I could give you a very exact mechanical reason why the late stages of the story come out as they do. Mm. Well, Secondary characters often serve to highlight or contrast certain traits of the protagonist. So how does the character of Brogdon, who, I mean, from the very beginning, getting stung by those god-awful jellyfish, <laughs> spends a large part of the story convalescing, how does he play into the dynamic of the novel? So... There's multiple reasons, actually, that he does. So right at the outset, you know, he's the first real character that Hamill meets. And, you know, they do have a fairly friendly and respectful, you know, repartee between them. You know, I really loved writing their early scenes together, actually. That was some of the most fun just to sort of get my get my feet in the voice of this world. But uh, a couple of things I did want to set up very early on was that, first off, that Brogdon in many ways represents some of Hamill's greatest fears about this survey, where the first story or history that we learn of Brogdon is his solution to the problem he faced with Supervisor Obel, which, of course, is a pretty harsh scene in and of itself. <laughs> and so, you know, Brogdon is this person who's supposedly 
roughly Hamill's equal in terms of the fact that he's monitoring Hamill's performance, but otherwise he's really kind of a secondary role in the survey's hierarchy or uh, you know leadership hierarchy. But he's clearly more physically intimidating than Hamill is. So you know he immediately represents this potential threat of punishment. But then also Hamill does note that in several ways Brogdon appears to potentially be past his prime. That's you know, Hamill himself is really hoping to be able to reassert himself into a um, position of quality with the Bureau. And Brogdon also quickly reminds him that capability may not be enough, that if he takes too long, if he drags too much, he may end up being this washed up, almost was, that is never able to get back to where he hoped he would be. So that's part of it. But then also, I wanted to establish that initially, Hamill was going to be very uncertain about where the real threats to his authority were going to be. And so, you know, very quickly, he encounters Yost. And, you know, Yost, as we've already covered, has a very domineering and aggressive introduction, both in terms of how she interacts towards Hamill and then how she treats the customs inspector. And so, you know, very quickly, Hamill is forced into the position of reevaluating his initial assessments and anticipation. And then on the boat journey, Brogdon's physical prowess is actually very quickly affirmed through the rowing, but then he's immediately taken off the board. You know, so this, you know, potentially capable, potentially, you know, menacing force is almost instantly neutralized. And it reminds Hamill of his vulnerability, but it also reminds him of Yost's vulnerability as well. And then later, Efta and Tomka and Mikhail, that's, um, you know, in a lot of ways, thematically, and this ties back to that earlier question, if Brogdon had not been stung by that jellyfish, I don't think that Hamill would have been able to do as much as he did to navigate evenly the conflicts that he's facing, because I think he would have seen his threats as more severe and less fragile than they really are. Um, I wanted that scene to be sort of this warning that, hey, any one of these characters, no matter how violent or destructive they could seem, can also fail in you know, a blink of an eye. Hmm. It's a great book all the way around, sir. Well played. <laughs> well written. <laughs> Well, you uh, mentioned it uh, earlier. You have another book, which I think you said was a young adult thriller? Young adult dark fantasy. Dark fantasy. Okay. Coming out in January of 2024 called The Neverborn Thief. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that? So I will add, actually, because I seem to be the person who just always has news that in November of next year, I also have a collection of short stories coming out now called In Those Fading Stars that was taken by Crystal Lake Press just about a month ago. So nice. got a lot of things rolling out. I got like, a, you know, got quite a bit to uh, endorse. You know, um, <laughs> The Neverborn Thief is a young adult dark fantasy. It's about a young boy named Connor who wakes up one night to discover that um there's something in his room stealing his shadow. And because he wakes up and interrupts the theft and he cries out, his mother kind of comes running to investigate. And the thief only gets away with half of his shadow. Later that night, after his mom makes sure he's okay, he gets a visit from the shadow police who um, inform him that he's got roughly three days to recover his shadow. And that if he doesn't, you know, basically... He's going to lose his sense of self forever. 
And the young boy, through mechanisms introduced early in the story, ventures into a place called the Shadowlands, which is largely populated by shadows that have been severed from people for various different reasons, and then also not been able to find their way to a place beyond life. And it's a very odd little piece. I wrote the initial draft of a long time ago, back right around 2013. I had, at that point, my stepson was about seven, and my wife was pregnant with my first child. And I really wanted to write a story that my children would be able to enjoy while they were growing up. Mm. And so... The initial draft, though, uh, you know, I came out all right. It wasn't a terrible book or anything like that, but it was also a pretty thin book. It didn't have the kind of depth that I do like to put into my writing. It was a very superficial narrative. It resolved itself easier than I would have liked as well. And so I had shelved it for a little while and I'm not really sure what changed, but I started kind of noodling away. I guess really, to some extent, it coincides with my research into world folklores, but I ended up starting to build a little bit of a mythology connected to the Shadowlands. And more and more, I found myself really getting into sort of this epic historical mythos that I was building. And when I revisited the draft finally, many years later, actually, I really worked to invest it with you know, a pretty sweeping history that's it's got some of my favorite fables that I've ever written. It's got a lot of like, you know, little stories that the characters tell to each other. Um, they have heroes out of their past that they refer to and they try to live up to. And yeah, it transformed into this really odd sort of offbeat fantasy novel that also has a lot of really creepy, violent elements. You know, I definitely felt like it pushed the boundary a little bit in terms of what a young adult book would allow. It's really targeted towards like 13, 14, like right above middle grade, just sort of that cusp between that and, the, you know, older teen readers. And that was actually what led me to work with some beta readers was that I was concerned that the piece would be a little bit too dark and maybe a little bit too hard to understand some of the dark elements. But I got really solid feedback from the beta readers. I also took into account a few of their recommendations as well and ended up producing the final draft. And it's funny because, you know, I ended up shelving it for a little while. I had a couple of agents almost take it. And then I really got into the writing of the Mobius store. And for some reason, I just kind of shelved the process of researching young adult markets for a while. And when Mobius got published, or got accepted, I should say, and Galatok, because um, they were both actually initially accepted in the same month. I uh, was doing a little bit of research uh, at other presses right before I got that acceptance, and there was one that I had stumbled across, and it was a new subsidiary of an established horror press called Manta Press, and the new subsidiary was called Olive Ridley Press. And so my son is a huge fan of sea turtles, and his favorite sea turtles are Olive Ridley turtles. And when I discovered this press, we'd actually just come back from Jekyll Island, which has, you know, Georgia's most well-known sea turtle sanctuary. And mm. so I was like, oh, how cool is that? You know, the press is named after my son's favorite turtle. And, you know, I'll go ahead and just send this off to him. And then I kind of forgot about it for a few months. And then... You know, a while later, you know, I was just getting into, I think, the promotion from Mobius. And, you know, it's actually would have been probably about a 
few weeks after we talked last, I got the acceptance mm-hmm. from them. And it was really funny because in my response to their acceptance letter, I said, you know, what's really funny is um, the reason I ended up sending this to you is because you're named after my son's favorite turtle. And they're like, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's funny how these things happen. We were actually just talking to a sea turtle hospital about doing a bit of charitable reciprocity with some of our profits. And I was like, oh, how cool is that? We visited a sea turtle hospital, you know, in the summer in Georgia on Jekyll Island. And of course, the response was, you're not going to believe this, but that's the turtle hospital that we're donating money to. Wow. No, I was just like, wow. I Damn. mean, this is, uh, this seems like the exact Synchronicity. Right home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and they've been a delight to work with. Like uh, I'll say, you know, Mobius and Galatok are both through Wicked House, which has just been phenomenal. They've been such a good press. Galatok was originally taken by a press called Cactus Moon. And, you know, to their credit, I'll say that they were professional enough. You know, they didn't strike me as problematic or suspect in any way, but they also were very, very limited. You know, communication was pretty slow. They really don't have resources to support authors, especially not the way Wicked House does. And You know, overall, I wasn't satisfied with the relationship I had with them. And so I ended up terminating the contract with them and moving it over to Wicked House. Well, you know, submitting to Wicked House and they loved the book at Wicked House. And so, you know, that was a very quick pivot from there. But no, um, you know, Manta Press, um, where Olive Ridley, I should say, the uh, the imprint is, uh, they've been great to work with. Um, Tim McWhorter is their, um, you know, their their head and um, yeah, he's been fabulous, good communicator. I'm really, um, I'm actually expecting to see cover design here in the next couple of weeks. And I'm really excited about that. This will be my first time working with somebody other than Christian Bentulin, who's done the Mobius and Galatok covers. But Mm -hmm. I'm drawing a blank on his name because it's difficult to spell. (laughs) But uh, he does some, I've seen his work actually. He did a really good cover for Duncan Ralston and then a couple of other pieces that I've seen too. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what he's going to send to us. But yeah, I think it's a really different book than uh, Mobius or Galatok. You know, it's definitely not overtly horror in the same way. But, you know, at the same time, I think you'll find some familiarity in the kinds of world building that take place. Nice. Well, Andrew, as always, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, too. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, I mean, you've uh, mentioned quite a few things. Is there anything else you'd like to plug or let your readers know about or maybe reiterate some things you've already said? Um, you know, that's a tough one. But if I wanted to plug anything specific, actually, you know, I did mention that I've got a short story collection coming down the road. But I do have two pieces of short fiction that have come out recently that I'm super thrilled to be sharing with folk. I have one piece in a magazine called Translunar Traveler's Lounge called Do You Read? And Mm -hmm. it's about three robots who venture into a former and dead human neighborhood with the intention of holding a seance. And it's a piece I think is just wicked good fun. And Translunar Traveler's Lounge is fantastic. And so I really want to direct folk to them. And then I have a piece in the most recent issue of Fusion Fragments called Before You Fade Away. And I've been really trying to get folk to read that one because actually of all of my pieces of writing, it's only a 2,000 word short story of that, but it's actually probably my single favorite thing that I've written. It's one of the few stories that um, I've produced that's literally from sitting down to write it and 
getting it accepted for publication. It was done in basically a single sitting. I sat down writing that piece knowing exactly what I wanted it to be. And I wrote exactly what I wanted to write. And it was taken almost instantly by an excellent magazine and had some minor edits for grammar, just minor technical typo kind of stuff. But, you know, that's so unusual in the world of writing. Like, I'm a huge reviser. I love going back through my stuff and tinkering and fine tuning and just making everything feel like it flows. Like, my dialogue is always something I love going over to really think about the interplay and personality. But yeah, this piece came out exactly in a finished form. And that's just such an odd thing. I love pointing people towards that. And it's also one of the most personal pieces I've ever written as well. So awesome. Well, I will get those links from you listeners at home. Those links, as well as all links are in the description. And Andrew, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Have a great night. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer of dark fantasy who blurs the connection between reality and consciousness. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.